My name is David Morelli. I'm the pastoral resident here for those who don't know me. Uh, for those that are keeping score, Corey and I are not wearing the same thing uh, this week. But for guys who wear a lot of navy and black and gray, I would imagine it would happen again sometime soon. Uh, I'm excited to have the opportunity to preach this morning and to continue uh, in our current series looking at the characteristics of the church and the characteristics of the people of God. And today we're going to be looking at the characteristic of love. Now, you might be sitting at home or sitting in your chair this morning thinking, what's love got to do? What's love got to do with it, right? Uh, what's love but just a secondhand emotion? And who needs a heart if a heart can be broken? And, well, you'd be right. Uh, no, sorry, that's just way too easy. How can you not make a pun like that? Some people didn't laugh, so I just, I don't know if you understood the reference. Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Uh, no, today we're going to be looking at what I believe is the most important trait, and that is love. But don't take my word for it. Listen to what Scripture has to say. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, and verse 13 as well. It'll be up on the screens. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see, scripture is clear, love matters. Listen to Jesus' words in John 13, 35, speaking to his disciples, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You see, there's not a characteristic more to the heart of being a disciple of Jesus than love. It's the foundation of the two greatest commandments, right? First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love our neighbors as ourselves. So our ability as followers of Jesus to love others matters. And it's the foundation of our witness to the watching world. So that takes us to our passage today. It'll be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. I will read it for us, and then we will pray. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, reads, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, would you ready our hearts? Would you reveal to us the kinds of people that you call us to be, the kinds of people that you've created us to be? Father, would you reveal your nature of love, this call to love that we have, as, we, as you send us out into the world, Lord, to be 
your witnesses, would that be with, with love uh, firstly? Father, we pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, so where are we going today? Well, first, we're going to look at the call to love that we have in Scripture. Then we'll discuss what kind of love we're actually called to. What's the definition? We'll look at the difference between biblical love and what our culture says is true about love. Next, we'll touch on the motivation of love, why we love, and then finally, how is this love possible? What should it look like in our lives? So first, the call to love. Well, twice in our passage today, we see this call. Look with me at verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another. And then jumping down to verse 11, it says basically the same thing. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So scripture is clear. We are called to love. But again, what kind of love are we actually called to? Well, before we get into that, let me just share a fact about myself. I don't like romantic movies. I'm not a rom-com fan. Uh, it's not because, you know, I'm the macho man, right, and I can't express emotion, and I'm not comfortable with other people expressing it, or I don't have a heart, so I can't fall in love with characters or appreciate love stories. Uh, it's not those things, but I think what always, what catches me in those movies is the fact that the love portrayed is often a fantasy love, right? It's love when everything is going right. Um, it's these fairy tale stories that I think that definition of love tends to miss the mark, although I think it shares the message or points to the, the way that our culture views love. Our culture views love as fleeting, right? It changes with our emotions. It changes based upon how you're doing that day. I'm not a morning person, so a lot of times I wake up not ready to love, and I think Lauren can attest to that. Our culture also believes that we are the source of love, right? That love comes from us. We define what it is, what it looks like. It's subjective to individuals. We each have capacities to love, and whatever that looks like to us, that's what it is. It's defined subjectively rather than absolutely. And then maybe most shockingly, our culture sees love as conditional, right? Everywhere in our society today, you see messages that once you are no longer getting what you want from a relationship, you no longer have to love them that that person is supposed to fulfill you in some way, right? Supposed to meet your needs. And if they're not, then you don't have to love them. So as believers, we're in danger of being discipled by that view, our culture's view on love, rather than a biblical one. So let's look at what a biblical definition of love is and how it differs from our cultures. First, biblical love is not fleeting, rather it's steadfast. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, love is patient. The New King James Version defines it or translates it as love suffers long. And I think that might be the best definition, right? Love endures, it remains, it lasts, it perseveres. Those of us who have loved another person, whether that be a friend, a family member, a spouse, you understand that, right? Love is not always easy. In a marriage ceremony, a couple takes a vow to love one another until death. And a piece of that vow is to love one another both in sickness and in health. And a lot of what we see in today's media, TV, you know, movies, things like that, it's, it's loving in health, right? Loving when bills are paid, loving when there's no relational conflict or strife. But what happens then when that's not the case, right? Biblical love is steadfast. God's love for us is steadfast. It endures. Secondly, we are not the source of love. Rather, God is. 
Three times in our passage today, we see that. First in verse seven, we see the call to love, let us love one another, and then it says, for love comes from God, right? He is the source. Then in verse eight, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It is who he is, it is his nature. Thirdly then, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? We didn't have love to give to God, but God, who is love, loved us. Right? He is the source. Thirdly, biblical love is not based in emotion, but rather rooted in action and in deed. Where we see this, look at verse 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then verse 10 I just read, not that we loved God, right, but that he loved us and sent Jesus as our sacrifice. So God's love for us is rooted first in his nature. He is love. Now this doesn't subtract from his being judge, right? His being wrath. God's traits don't, they're not in conflict with one another. They don't detract from one another, but they exist in perfect harmony and unison. And that doesn't always make sense to us, but that doesn't mean it's not true. God is love. But secondly, his love for us is rooted in the fact that he sent Jesus to take our place and die the death that we deserved. So we know that God loves us because of that. And finally, and most importantly, biblical love is not conditional, but it's unconditional. Listen to Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. It'll be up on the screen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Church, nothing can separate us from the love of God sealed in the person of Jesus. God's love for us doesn't depend upon us. And praise the Lord that it doesn't, right? But God's love is rooted in who he is, his nature. God is love, verse 8. And what he has done for us in sending Christ to be our sacrifice. Now, one more note about this. The New Testament is written in Greek. And the ancient Greek has four different words that translate into English as love. The love here describing God's love for his people, the Greek word for that is agape. Now there's something unique about this kind of love, about agape love. The other three Greek words we see demonstrated in life, we've all experienced, and these are things that reflect the character of God. You see romantic love, we see brotherly love between close friends, you see familial love between a parent and a child. These are all things created by God that honor and glorify him. But again, something separates agape love. That's something specially reserved for God's love for his people. So agape love is, de is defined as a self-giving love that gives without expecting anything in return. Right, how do we see this play out? Well, God gave of himself. Right? He gave his one and only son that we might live through him, as it says in verse 9. 
And God did this not expecting repayment. We understand that we can't repay God, right? Sometimes we fall into this trap into thinking that we need to earn God's love. We need to earn favor with him. And so we do good deeds thinking that somehow we're repaying God. The reality is we can't. And God doesn't ask us to love him in order to repay him. He asks us to love him out of gratitude, right? Because we're so in awe of how he loves us. We just sang about that. So church, this is the definition of love, agape love that gives of itself, expecting nothing in return. That's the definition that we are called to. That's how God has loved us. So why do we love? Look with me at verse 11. It reads, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Since God loved us, we love one another. Now that might sound familiar, and that's probably because the more quoted passage from this chapter comes in verse 19 where it says, we love because he first loved us, right? We love others because God first loved us. We've experienced such a real, powerful, tangible encounter with the living God that we respond in love. So now you're thinking, okay, great, I got this. I understand that scripture calls me to love, that it's an agape love. I understand that, you know, I love because God first loved me. So I can go out into the world and love the people that I like. Well, not exactly, right? What about all the people that are hard to love? Right? We've all experienced relationships, coworkers, friends, family, maybe in-laws. My in-laws are sitting right back there. Never had anything like that with them. Right? We've, we've experienced relationships where people are, can be hard to love. We disagree. Personalities clash, right? It's a reality that we live with. But are we called to love those people too? Or just the people that we like. In order to answer that question, I think we need to look at our own condition when God first loved us, and we need to ask ourselves, were we easy to love? To do that, let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. I'll read it for us. It will be up on the screen as well. It reads, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Church, were you easy to love? Were you easy to love when you were dead in transgressions and sins, when you followed the ways of the world, when you gratified the cravings of your flesh and followed its desires and thoughts, when you, by nature, were deserving of wrath? Were you easy to love? No. But what do we know is true in the gospel, verses 4 and 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we had it all together, not once we were sinless and holy and perfect like the Lord designed us to be, but while we were sinning, Christ died for us. 
And I think it's important to touch on the fact that we're still difficult to love, right? Which one of us is still without sin? All of us in some ways are hard to love. So the point isn't just to love the people that we like. What kind of a witness would it be to do that? What kind of a witness would it be to just love the people that root for the same sports teams as you? And I know that's challenging. I'm a Brewers fan. Some of you are Cardinals fans. My father-in-law is a Card- or a Cub- some of you are Cubs fans. My father-in-law is a Cardinals fan. It's the cross I have to bear. <laughs> but seriously, what kind of a witness would it be to love the people that look like us, that, that talk like us, that vote like us, or that believe the things about faith like us? Right? What kind of a message does that send about God's love if we only love the people we like? So when we write slogans or we make bracelets that say we love because he first loved us, we need to remember exactly who we were when God first loved us. We cannot forget the length to which God went in order to save us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to himself and to manifest and demonstrate his love for us. So how is this love possible, right? We've touched on God alone is the source of love. So how do we as humans possibly portray or display that kind of love? Look with me at verse seven, the second half reads, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. When you trusted in Christ, a few different things happen, right? You acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior and you repent and turn away from your sin a few different things occur. First, salvation becomes reality, right? What Jesus purchased for you by shedding his blood on the cross is now reality. You have eternity with God. You now have a personal relationship with God. That used to not be possible because of the obstacle of your sin, but now it is. You have communion with God. Thirdly, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God's presence now abides in you. But lastly, you are born again. You experience a spiritual rebirth. You are no longer born of man or born of sin or flesh, but rather born of God, as it says in verse 7. And it's through this rebirth that God imparts upon us his agape love. Now, why does he do this? I think there's two reasons. Look with me at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The first reason I think he gave us his love is to display it to a watching world. Our love for one another is evidence of God's presence in us. Right? It's evidence that God abides in us and that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives producing this fruit of love. But secondly, and I think more importantly, is the second half of that verse, his love is made complete in us. I think this touches on the reason God gives us his love. Now, don't misunderstand this verse and begin to think that we can add something to God's love. We don't do anything that that makes God's love greater. Rather, it is great in who he is. It is his nature, perfect. 
But what this verse, what this idea of being made complete is referring to is maturity of wholeness. Corey preached on this a couple of weeks ago and we talked about how unity again leads to maturity in the body. And so it is with love that this whole, the Holy Spirit, this work of producing the fruit of love in us leads to maturity, leads to completeness. I think scripture argues that the ultimate sign of maturity in the life of a Christian is love. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he told his disciples that if they love one another, the world will know them as his disciples. So you see, God didn't just give us his love that we would copy and imitate it to a watching world. Now don't misunderstand, we are called to do that. But not just in some robotic fashion as though we can love the world as Christ loved us, but that it would transform us, that we would become love, that in just the same way as God is love, so it would be with us. Now this is a process, right? Sanctification is the, the theological word for it, of being made more like Christ. And that happens as we abide in Jesus. And Jesus uses the, the analogy of the vine and the branches, that he is the true vine, and that by clinging to him, the Holy Spirit does its work and produces the fruit of love that leads to maturity, that leads to completeness. So that's where we're headed. So church, understand that we are called to love, but not just any love, an agape love that gives of itself without expecting anything in return. Understand that love comes from God alone. He is the source. It is who he is. This does not detract from the other attributes of God, but God is love. Love is defined by his nature, and it's also defined by the fact that he sent Jesus on our behalf. And finally, understand that our motivation is to love because God first loved us, even when we didn't deserve it. So what should love practically look like in our lives? Before we get to the really practical, uh, the really practical things, I want to take us a couple other places in Scripture to show you how the entirety of Scripture points to the importance of love and defines what love ought to look like in the life of a believer. The first place is just before our passage today. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. So if you have a Bible, turn there. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. It reads, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And what scripture is not saying here is that words and speech don't matter, right? We understand that words can be used for a lot of good. They can also be used for harm, right? We've all been on the receiving end of a comment that has hurt us or wounded us in some way. So it's not saying don't love in that way, but don't love in just that way. Let you also love in action and in truth. John gives the example here of if we have material possessions and we see someone else in need and we don't have compassion and empathy, someone watching us can rightly question whether the love of God is in us. Right? 
And what I don't mean is go meet tangible needs so that you can earn favor with God. So that other Christians can look at you and say, wow, that person's so awesome. They've got it figured out. Love them by meeting tangible needs because Christ has loved you. Right? Just as God didn't just tell us he loved us, but he sent Jesus to die in our place. Right? God's love is rooted in action, and so it ought to be with us. So church, don't just love with words or speech, but love in action, and in truth. Second place I want to take us is Philippians 2, verses 1 to 8. It reads, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Church, our love is to be tender and compassionate. It is not to be selfish, but rather others-centered, seeking the welfare of others. Is that true of you today? Is your love humble? Is it servant-hearted? And in that way, does it have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who didn't count equality with God, who didn't count all the benefits that he had of being fully God. He didn't see those as something to be grasped, something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he laid down his life for us. He became nothing and became obedient to death, even death. Across church, that's how we are called to love, to lay down our lives for another. Finally, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7 this is a famous passage often read uh, at wedding ceremonies depicting or, uh, what love looks like, adding attributes uh, to what it ought to look like in the life of a believer. It reads, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Church, is your love patient and kind? Does it envy or boast, or is it proud? Does it honor others or dishonor them? Is it self-seeking or easily angered? Does your love keep record of wrongs? Does your love delight in evil or does it rejoice with the truth? Does it protect and trust and hope and persevere? Church, that's the love that we are called to today. So practically speaking, how do we love well? The first one might not be one you'd think of 
but I think it's incredibly valuable and it's prayer. I think sometimes we overlook prayer when thinking about loving others because it doesn't feel like it's meeting tangible needs. And again, like we were just reading in 1 John chapter 3, tangible needs matter. What I'm not saying is just pray for people and never do anything. But I want to ask if you do pray for others. I think our prayer lives can point, can, can help us to see how well we love others. I know this is true of myself. I often run to God and bring my own laundry list of needs and wants and desires and yet I never pray for anyone but myself. So I ask, if you love others, are you bearing their burdens? Are you running to the Father, interceding on their behalf, saying, Lord, come, help? Are you praying for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones? Are you praying for healing for those who are sick, for peace and for comfort for those struggling with mental illness? You pray for, for faith for comfort for parents whose children have walked away from the Lord? Do you pray for the lost in the same way? Does the reality that there are billions of people on the world, in the world today, excuse me, that do not know Jesus, does that break you? Have you allowed that to burden your heart? That you would fall to your knees and say, Father, come, we need you. We need you to, to show yourself to these people that they would know the never-failing, unending love of God. Do you pray for people who don't know Jesus? And again, this isn't some, some standard as if God's not going to love you unless you do these things. Again, that's not the motivation. We love because he has loved us. So don't forget that. The second way is through the art of hospitality. And I think this is a lost art in our society as well. We live such fast-paced lives that I think a lot of us don't have margin to even invite people into our homes, right? We're running from one place to the next. We're so connected digitally more than ever, but I think relationally we're disconnected, more disconnected than possibly ever. I think in some ways we've forgotten the importance of human relationship, of spending time with one another. Now, don't Mishear me, I'm not making a political statement about COVID, about restrictions and social gatherings and things like that. But I mean, as believers, are our homes open to others? Are they welcoming, inviting places? Do you have others over for dinner and say, come, sit at my table and eat. Let's enjoy one another's company. Is this true, especially for those who don't know Jesus? Right? Is your place welcoming and inviting for those searching for the Lord? My prayer for myself, my prayer for Lauren and I in our household and for all of you in each of your households is that God would so fill our hearts with the fruit of love that it would transform us so that when other people encounter us, they encounter Christ. Not because we have it all together, not because your house is neat and tidy all the time. In fact, this morning I was uh, in my morning grogginess grabbing some breakfast out of our pantry and knocked over our flour container dumping flour all over the pantry. So I'll be cleaning that up <laughs> when we go home. Not encountering Christ because we have it all together or because we're awesome. Encountering Jesus because God has so worked in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is so alive, transforming us to becoming love by nature. So church, we ought to be a people of love, not human love, but self-giving, humble, servant-hearted, agape love that comes only from our Father. It's not something we do, something we copy, something we imitate. It is who 
We are, it is our nature, we love because he first loved us. As the band comes up again, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have first loved us. Father, that when we were by nature deserving of wrath, when we were still sinning, Christ died for us. And not that we have already achieved it all, as you say in Philippians 3. Father, would we press on to the goal of being transformed into love through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Father, I pray that you would be faithful to accomplish that work in us, that we would love because you first loved us, and that the witness to the watching world would be incomprehensible, would be incredible because of that. Not because we are great, Father, but because you are, because your love is unconditional. It is never-ending and never-failing. We pray in your name. Amen.